Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started, you noticed that there was the cookie learn today. I hope you took advantage of learning something about uh, breakfast. Today's topic was portion size and I think also planning. Uh, there was a trivia question. The trivia question that was to be answered and was and with a correct answer picked out of random was list two types of healthy proteins and two to eat in moderation and then describe a strategy you use to incorporate healthy protein into your diet. The best answer seemed to come from Lise Davini. Lise, come up here if you would. And it was eggs, mainly egg whites, lean red meat, and then um, to use in incorporating into your diet would be to incorporate into stews, which would be mostly vegetables, uh, some minor protein, and then egg white omelets, for example. So there was, however, one interesting comment, which I liked, which didn't actually talk about incorporating it into your food, but said, don't buy the packaged crap at the store and keep it out of your house, which I just think is a really wonderful thing anyway. So thank you for that answer as well. So here you go. Thank you very much. Okay. Now, today's code is ISRJ. In order to get your CME credits, it'll be posted there, but it's small ISRJ. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, Aaron Val Kaplan, my colleague and friend. And so Aaron started out at Tufts, Paxet Lux, graduating uh, cum laude with a BS in engineering. He went to Bowman Gray School of Medicine. He went off to Northwestern for his internship and residency, and then off to Stanford to do his cardiology fellowship, staying an extra year for his angiographic and interventional cardiology training. He joined the faculty there, and he was working in the cath lab there as well as directing the cath lab at the VA. He was recruited here in 2002, and he has ascended to full professorship here at Dartmouth over the years from 2002 to, I think that happened in eight. Oh, wait, somewhere around there. And Aaron has uh, many, many skills, not only as a clinician, but really as an entrepreneur. He is the holder or co-holder of 49 patents he is my go-to person when there are questions around intellectual property and how do our faculty deal with issues of, uh, of uh, trying to either patent an idea or device. Aaron started in 2003 here the 3D Symposium, which brings together members of industry, small companies, angel investors, clinicians, inventors, and he's been doing that for uh, at least 13 years. The program, limited in size, closed doors, and having the FDA is also involved and reimbursers in an attempt to get to some idea about how do we bring new technology forward. And, uh, and that was a very creative program. It's incredibly well thought of. And it also highlights Aaron's interest in, in bridging between new device development 
bringing something to bear for the good of our patients, uh, but doing it in a controlled way and studying what works and, and bringing it forward if it works well. He's been the founder of it and president then or chief medical officer of at least five companies and uh, continues now working with our house staff in a program of clinical fellow slash MBA opportunity here at the Tuck School of Business in which he lectures yearly. Uh, he has very avid connections to Tuck. He's a bridge of our uh, medical enterprise, if you will, to the business side of things, and he is a real resource for our institution. Obviously, continuously publishing in his fields of interest and doing research projects continually since he came here to Dartmouth. Without further ado, I will let Aaron talk to us today about this very interesting topic and, and how you bring entrepreneurship uh, to the care of patients. Aaron. Thank you, Rich. Let me see if I can turn this on. And I think I have to turn this off. I was not an AD monitor in high school, <laughs> but I'm, I'm learning. Anyway, Rich, thank you for that uh, introduction. I'm really happy to be here um, and excited to uh, talk about a new topic that I've not talked uh, to you about before, left atrial appendage closure. I'm excited about this uh, for a number of reasons. As a cardiologist and as an internist, uh, and, you know, in cardiology we focus on coronary disease, uh, on valvular disease, uh, and AFib is one of the main pillars of what we do. It has a huge uh, impact on our population, and that, as I'll talk about, there's been amazing or uh, real strides forward in the last uh, decades in how we treat this, but that stroke uh, prevention in these patients despite um, recent developments uh, in the pharmaceutical side, uh, which has really been shown to reduce uh, stroke, there's still a large portion of our patients uh, to which that um, technology really is not accessible. And as I talk about this uh, today, I want you to think in terms of, for those of us who take care of patients, uh, think about the patients we come across uh, with AFib and, and how we're uh, managing uh, their stroke risk. It's not turned on. It doesn't work. Um, I, do, I do have some disclosures. Um, and as, as Rich said, I'm a serial entrepreneur. And my interest in left atrial appendage closure now dates back more than two decades, where I did work on snare technology, uh, which I actually uh, abandoned, but other people have uh, taken up. And I'm now uh, working with some engineers on next generation plug technology. You need to understand this from a disclosure perspective, but also to highlight that this is something I've been thinking about for a long time, and um, I think that perspective hopefully will be helpful. I do get support from medical device uh, industry uh, through the conference and also through clinical trials, and I'm an implanting cardiologist, which um, makes me suspect by members of uh, certain communities. Uh, anyway, with those disclosures, uh, my objective today is really to talk about AFib with a primary focus uh, on uh, epidemiology uh, and a focus on, uh, on stroke. Um, electrophysiologists um, are doing a superb job uh, in terms of characterizing this uh, and understanding mechanisms, um, but I'm really going to um, you know, focus on uh, stroke uh, risk. Um, and also the role of uh, anticoagulants uh, as well as the direct oral anticoagulants. I'm going to talk about uh, left atrial appendage uh, anatomically as the thromboembolic source of stroke uh, in AFib. Uh, 
review um, the technology that has evolved and the data to support its use. And most importantly, one of the main drivers why I'm here is that we're looking on how to, to uh, implement this technology and introduce it to our practice uh, here at DH and looking for your help and looking uh, hopefully to help you manage patients. Here's my agenda and I'll start off with a case study. Uh, which is an 86-year-old um, gentleman who has a five-year history of permanent uh, AFib uh, and a history of a GI bleed, um, which occurred five days after being started on rivaroxaban, also known as Zeralto, uh, and has been refusing uh, anticoagulation. Uh, you know, medical grand rounds are supposed to present most unusual patients, hard to diagnose, and I'm sure no one in this room has dealt with a patient uh, like this. And which is a subtext of what I'm trying to discuss. It's a very common problem. Uh, his problem lists are here, and as you'll see is important, include an episode of heart failure, has hypertension, uh, and reduced uh, renal function, as well as peripheral vascular disease. Um, he's a lovely guy. He tells me he's not as tall as he used to be, and that is correct. Um, and he's a retired machinist, though, um, and we, because I've worked with machinists before, we talk about lathes uh, and mills and bridge ports, and a uh, lovely guy spending his time between Vermont uh, and Florida. We haven't heard that before. Uh, and reports drinking only one drink a, a day, uh, which his wife actually uh, says is correct. Um, so, um, his more focused history, uh, he has permanent AFib diagnosed in 2011. Uh, he's been well rate controlled. Um, his cardiac history includes hypertension, which actually has been controlled. The episode of um, a heart failure that I alluded to um, and uh, with a well-preserved ejection fraction. He has no history of stroke in his GI history, as I outlined before, and is being followed by GI. As I've gone down this journey in terms of implementing this, and this is not supposedly, I'm not supposed to um, really be too um, congratulatory of the GI department in, in this, or a section in this department, Rich, uh, but um, we're finding that we really, um, to manage these patients, um, it's really important um, to do this in a multidisciplinary fashion, of which GI and Give a shout out to Corey Siegel, who's been very helpful as we plan these uh, procedures. So for this gentleman, the real issue is what is his stroke risk? Um, and how do we characterize it? What is the untreated history of it? What is the treated history of it? And how do we balance that with um, the cost of treating it, not only in terms of dollars, but in terms of bleeding? And um, I see Megan Corwright's here. I'm glad she could, she's here because she, her work is really focused on, this is supposed to be an idolization of a person perhaps, uh, I had too much or not enough time maybe making the slide up, uh, but that, you know, we, as I read guidelines, as we get kind of guidelined to death about stuff, what often we're forgetting about is the patient. Uh, and you'll read guidelines as after a GI bleed, it, you know, you shouldn't, it should be all right to put your patient back on anticoagulation, which according to the guidelines, I see Jeff Coover in the audience, I'll put my hand over my heart, uh, is correct, but you talk to patients about that and they have another view. So um, I think that this is a very important uh, area, um, um, and um, I think Megan's work in terms of understanding how the patient um, plays into this decision is key. So AFib, just a little bit about the um, um, 
A prevalence of it, for reasons that we'll talk about in the White House, will be happy we're number one here. Um, and um, though uh, this paper was intriguing to me that the prevalence in the U.S. is much higher, that may be for a number of reasons. Some of it may be ascertainment issues. The most important thing here to note from this slide is that AFib is increasing in incidence above and beyond the rate of the graying of our population. And that one quarter of the folks uh, in this room will be treated for AFib uh, in their um, uh, lifetime. And I was trying to do the calculations, but there's a disproportionate amount of people in the back row. But I think it's the, all the people in the first two rows. So this is a very common problem. Uh, and we're not doing as good a job as we think we are in terms of mitigating the stroke risk from this. And to me, the big problem with AFib now is really stroke. And if you look at the old Framingham data, the lifetime stroke risk for someone diagnosed with AFib is one in three. One in three, that's huge. And now you, get, you lose that when you see some of these percentages that say, oh, the stroke risk when you do a calculator is 2.3%. Well, for a 65-year-old or a 75-year-old, and you work that out, it's large. The other thing that I've noticed that these strokes are larger, and I'll talk about why that is, and often debilitating. But, and that we're doing a good job, I think, in terms of managing tachybrady issues. Um, and the EP uh, service is very focused on understanding the origins of AFib and treatment strategy for that. But today, in 2017, I think this is a huge problem. Here's old data that show as we get older, the contribution of stroke, uh, to, um, of AFib to stroke grows with about a third of the patients uh, in their 80s, about 20% of the patients in their 70s. So some definitions, and these do come from the guidelines, and as you read literature, like any literature, definitions um, evolve as the, the art evolves, but paroxysmal AFib is any AFib lasting more than 30 seconds, have been well documented, and less than seven days that either stops on its own or stops with help. Uh, persistent AFib is beyond that. Longstanding is more than 12 months, and permanent is a kind of a funny definition. Permanent AFib is when the patient uh, and his provider say, okay, you're in AFib, we have you well weight controlled, we're no longer gonna focus on trying to keep you out of that. Uh, and that's primarily our um, definition. Non-valvular, um, there's been a lot of names, lone AFib, um, and that really in the older literature, there was mitral stenosis and the AFib associated with that, and the thromboembolic um, um, issues behind that are, are different. And then there was um, non-mitral stenotic AFib, now called non-valvular AFib and according to guidelines, that really is without um, mitral stenosis, mechanical bioprosthetic valves, and a little bit controversial, we can talk about this, whether mitral valve repair should be included in that. Um, secondary AFib, and we are internists, when you evaluate a patient, obviously you need to look for uh, secondary causes. I've listed a couple. I see Rich Comey in the audience. I'm sure he can help me expand uh, this list. But, um, but for our um, purposes, uh, we need to remember that there are other uh, causes uh, that we need to uh, look at. Um, where I come in most contact with are withdrawal syndromes, obviously uh, after MI, post-op, uh, and the uh, like. 
1954, and this is not when I was born, I'm a lot younger than that, well, maybe not that much younger, um, uh, but 1954. Um, and I want to get an idea what was going on there. This is Willie Mays, and for the baseball enthusiasts, there's an NY, I'm from New York, but that has San Francisco Giants colors on it. A lot's changed. It was cool to be a middle-aged white guy, and apparently he still had the ability to multitask um, and could figure out multiple ways to despolate the environment while increasing our carbon footprint. <laughs> Billy Graham was on the cover and with a nude woman, which interested me, um, and I know what he was thinking about, and he definitely aged over the years. Um, um, Brubeck was still cool. Um, they clearly were not interested in repetitive head injuries or orthodontia. But why is this up here? This is when Coonan was approved, and I made up that. Um, that's not really appeared on time, but I thought it should have, and I wrote them a letter. Uh, but it was, and uh, it's really important. Um, Warfarin has a great, very colorful story, which I don't have time to go into, but that's when it was approved. Uh, and really, Warfarin and primarily the Framingham study has really framed our understanding of, of AFib. Um, and um, through the multiple studies primarily done in the 90s, has really established um, uh, anticoagulation appropriately as a cornerstone for our treatment. And multiple studies um, with a uh, 25, approximately one in four reduction in mortality uh, and a two-thirds approximately reduction in stroke. That's very impressive. Uh, and we need to remember that, and as we're talking about left atrial appendage closure, that this is a uh, pillar uh, of what we do and that this has really been proven therapy uh, and very important. Uh, and it's part of our guidelines uh, and appropriately uh, so. Um, and we have used that plus uh, Framingham data and more recently uh, with the uh, DOACs, these have been um, uh, re-looked at and validated. There's a number of different scores of which the CHADS 2 VASC um, is uh, best um, characterized. And I think it's good to look at them because as we're evaluating these and looking at the contributors, it tells us what are the contributors uh, in terms of stroke. Um, congestive heart failure, which our patient has. Hypertension, it's interesting as you look at more modern data, um, that the association of hypertension with strokes has been reduced because you can really mitigate that risk uh, by the management of hypertension, which uh, is important and important for us to uh, remember, especially us interventional cardiologists. Um, age, diabetes, uh, being female, history of stroke, and uh, history of vascular disease, which is a big contributor uh, to the, from CHADS to CHADS to VASC. Uh, but remember these when we talk about bleeding, because one of the real important, interesting things as I've dug into this is that we think of um, stroke risk and we think of bleeding risk, but they really um, commingle uh, and they're very much associated, uh, which is a problem. Uh, this has been, and the other place where we get a lot of our data from more recently is this, uh, uh, from Sweden, um, and where they really studied uh, this problem in a multi, 
faceted way, and they have validated um, the uh, Chads 2 and Chads 2 VAS. The interesting thing here is I think that these are like all um, biologic activity. There's a, there's a spectrum, but that it allows us to identify uh, low-risk patients, of which there's about 15% where it doesn't make sense um, or the cost of anticoagulation doesn't mean, seem to make sense. I'll develop that more. But that uh, the chads 2 vasc is a nice um, um, a relationship between score uh, and stroke risk. So in terms of bleeding, um, there have been scores. Uh, I think there are people who get their professorships by making one of these names up, um, and that there are a lot of them. But the has-blood uh, score uh, is the most um, commonly used. And here it is. It's a little bit more complex, maybe beyond uh, my attention span. But that the important thing here is you look at these. Some of them should look very familiar. That is hypertension a history of stroke, uh, elderly, and that this also there's a frailty component uh, here. Uh, so that, you know, very much like the risk of stroke uh, is one of the issues that we have. The other thing here uh, is that there are some really common sense type things um, in a, um, the um, taking um, medications that put you at higher risk, uh, alcohol uh, intake, uh, history of bleeding, and uh, as well as renal failure uh, and liver uh, function. Um, label INR um, is really not all that relevant anymore because of the direct oral anticoagulants. Just a reminder to me to again highlight the importance of hypertension management in these patients uh, in terms that it really can mitigate uh, both bleeding uh, and stroke risk. The DOAX, which used to be called NOAX, because they used to be called, they first came out as a new oral anticoagulants, and then they turned into the novel oral anticoagulants, but the cognoscenti tell me now to call them DOAX. Um, and the DOAX are direct oral anticoagulants. They um, um, work directly by either inhibiting factor 10A as part of the prothrombinase complex or uh, directly thrombin uh, to um, inhibit the coagulant ca cascade. A huge um, step forward, and only took 50 plus years uh, after warfarin's uh, introduction, and I think is an important um, 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 addition uh, to our armamentaria. Um, the um, onset is uh, faster as their offset, much more predictable. Uh, less influenced by uh, foods, uh, and uh, in all the studies consistently, um, these patients are uh, within the therapeutic window much more um, frequently. Uh, here's a forest plot of all of the uh, meds uh, that have been uh, studied showing real benefit uh, compared uh, to uh, warfarin. But there are drawbacks. Um, there's costs. Um, there's inability um, to reverse, but that's being that uh, we will have uh, answers to that. Uh, Long-term follow-up, I, I think actually it's pretty good, but um, to me, um, they still carry bleeding risk, they'll reduce. But long-term compliance, as I've dug into this, I think is the most interesting uh, aspect of this. And I make that point by um, this slide here, which shows uh, three of the registration trials um, 
uh, for uh, the, these specific direct um, um, oral anticoagulants, and that two years, and that this is within the bubble of a registration trial. So these are patients willing to be randomized, who are randomized, um, uh, in this case, to rivaroxaban compared to warfarin, followed for two years, and that two years, 20% are not taking their meds for whatever reason, and that long-term compliance is a, a real uh, problem here. And that it's also interesting, as Rich alluded, as a guy who's a, um, um, a device guy, uh, who you look at uh, trials. For this trial, the real interesting data, I think, are, are beyond two years. But the ability to study the two-year window is obviously easiest. So that's what happens in a study. 20% of the patients put on meds aren't on it. And I highlighted this study because it was the only one that was not blinded, and that there are a similar number, actually numerically more patients on rivarox um, on warfarin, um, I'm sorry, um, similar numbers of uh, patients for both warfarin and NOAC uh, who are off uh, meds at two years. So real-world compliance, and I reference uh, Sweden, where everyone's smart. Um, the healthcare system's run by the internists, who are the smartest, of course. Um, and um, they looked at patients being discharged from the hospital with a stroke who had AFib, who were put on Coumadin. And at two years within that healthcare system, it's really impressive to me that only 40% of those patients remained on Coumadin. Now, there's fewer, more motivated patients. Um, and so it just highlights the difficulty of keeping these patients on, on medicines. So how are we doing in the US? The Pinnacle NCDR registry looked at this. Uh, this is a uh, CHADS uh, 2 uh, score. Uh, and if you look here, even at increased risk, that, that number is around uh, 50%. Um, Megan did an um, informal analysis here, and it may look like we're maybe doing a touch better, but a large portion of our patients who are at risk for stroke um, don't seem to be able to, uh, to get on anticoagulation, and probably for a good uh, reason. And I think as you look at these data, I think it's really important. So I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and talk about left atrial appendage closure, uh, talking about what is, you know, why do people start looking at this? Uh, well, we know that stroke is associated with clot because of the data that I showed uh, from uh, warfarin and direct thrombin inhibitors. But why do we think that the source is the appendage? I see Larry Dacey in the audience who can help out here. But the anatomy is that, and this is idealized, of course, uh, but that the appendage uh, sits off here in the left uh, atrium. Here's the mitral valve. Here's the fossa ovalis. Uh, and my understanding is that, and it, it derives from a different somite than the left atrium proper which is smooth and a lot thicker and is contiguous with the pulmonary veins, and that's why a lot of AFib comes from there, uh, but is, has a different structure. It's very trabeculated uh, and a lot uh, thinner. And it makes sense that when you don't have mechanical systole, blood can pool here and clot can form. A recent study that I did in a, a post-mortem heart uh, where we pressurized the atrium, and I, um, Rich, you may realize that one of your scopes was missing that day, uh, but we found a good use for it in a post-mortem heart. We put it into the right superior vein, and we illuminated the pressurized um, appendage, and this is what it looks like. Look how thin uh, that wall is and how variable, and you can get a good understanding of what that clot can uh, form there. 
a, uh, and when we've looked for clot, that's where it hangs out. This is a uh, transesophageal echo. Here's the aortic valve, atrium, and here's a clot within the appendage. This data comes from the Mayo, um, a seminal paper uh, where they looked at um, either autopsy, surgical, and this is just the beginning of the TEE era, um, when they found clot in a fib. Uh, in lone AFib, that's their terminology, older terminology, 90% of the time uh, they found it in the appendage. This was in distinction, uh, now recall this is from the Mayo, it's a, um, a lot of surgery goes on there, to a valvular AFib where there was a split. So in lone AFib, which we now um, call differently, 90% um, of the time when clot is found, it's found in the appendage. And that kind of makes a sense. A um, case that I had um, back when I was at Stanford was of a gentleman, I was at the VA uh, in his 70s with AFib, had multi-vessel disease, who I referred to uh, surgery for cabbage, where they were doing cabbage back in those days. Um, and we stopped the uh, patient's uh, Coumadin on um, Wednesday for a Monday case. His case got bumped, imagine that, uh, to the next uh, week and was off um, Coumadin for uh, two weeks uh, plus, actually got bumped two weeks. And when they put their transesophageal probe down, they found a mobile mass uh, in the atrium. And I'm sorry I don't have the dynamic images, but it was like a bouncing ball. Um, and there was all sorts of excitement. Uh, you don't, as a cardiologist, get called to the operating room that frequently. Um, but, um, and what we hypothesized that, that this was a clot from the appendage, and when they were manipulating the heart, got uh, displaced, and they were able to um, take it out and show you what the clot looks like. And talk about portion control, um, that um, this shows, and it really makes a point that these are large thrombi, and I think that's in large part why that these are such large strokes. So it's a very graphic evidence of what's uh, going on uh, here. The other uh, piece of data really comes from the cardiology literature in terms of TE cardioversion. We know that if we have a patient who comes to us with newly identified AFib and we're going to cardiovert them, we used to anticoagulate these patients for 30 days and bring them back. We know now, because we were worried about the stroke risk when we cardioverted them, uh, we know now that if we put a transesophageal probe down, um, interrogate their appendage, um, we, uh, and that's clear, we can cardiovert them uh, and uh, reduce, uh, nearly eliminate the uh, peri-cardioversion stroke. So these are all indirect um, evidence that the appendage is where clot came from. So there have been a lot of people looking at different approaches. Um, the approach I'll spend most time is by putting a mechanical, um, a, a piece of nitinol with some fabric over it in the appendage to occlude the appendage. This is an internal approach. There are people, and my first run at this was to use a snare technology. Um, this has evolved that people are using it now. Use a, a very elegant wire uh, to be able to do this. This is done um, per, um, through the uh, pericardium and through a transeptal. Uh, and that the surgeons have been um, ligating uh, and suturing appendages uh, for a long time. I'm going to focus on this because this is really what has emerged in terms of the non-surgical approach as the uh, best way of doing this. Uh, and there's a number of different approaches. The Watchman is the first one uh, to come uh, to the uh, clinic in the U.S. Uh, and will be the pretty much um, with the exception of um, devices which are under study, this is what's going to be available to us uh, for the uh, near uh, future. Uh, 
and so here's a Watson body. It's a nitinol um, um, <coughs> structure, has fabric over it. It's placed, uh, it's pulled within this delivery system. I'll talk about this in a moment, into the appendage. Um, and here is a, a CT. Here's the right atrium. Here's the left atrium. Uh, a transeptal puncture is made here, and here is the appendage. And here's the catheter extending uh, into uh, the appendage. Um, and you can also see the uh, transesophageal probe. All these procedures are done under TEE, and I'll talk about that more. But just to give you an understanding of how it's done, and that by occluding the appendage, um, um, the feeling was that this would reduce stroke. I'll show more pictures, but here's a, it's hard to see, um, and, but you can see the uh, watchman in place. And here's a transesophageal echo showing the same. So this was um, studied, and one of the things that I deal a lot with as a device developer is when do you study things? And the regulatory dynamic really pushes, um, for a lot of reasons, to randomize trials very early on and often captures the learning curve associated uh, with a specific technology. Uh, and this is a very uh, interesting story. This is the, um, the pivotal uh, publication uh, from that was really um, used to uh, support the Watchman approach. Approval. Uh, this was a 700-patient study with asymmetric randomization, two-to-one Watchman device uh, to a Coumadin. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things uh, is that the early animal data um, suggested that you needed to anticoagulate the patients for about 45 days so that you can have a re-endothelialization or a neo-endothelialization of the uh, implant. Um, so the trial really compared patients who could take Coumadin at least for 45 days, actually could take Coumadin, and compared patients with Watchman and Coumadin for 45 days versus uh, Coumadin alone. Primary efficacy endpoint um, was a combination of stroke, systemic embolism, or cardiovascular death. Primary safety endpoint were bleeding events, including uh, procedural-related bleeding, which uh, will be uh, very important. And also, one of my other areas of interest is that um, when we look at the literature, we're often looking at you know, very um, formal hypotheses, um, but we often forget that these trials are, are um, devised in close coordination with FDA, um, who have to um, approve things based on safety, safety and efficacy uh, um, with a standard of reasonable assuredness, and this reflects that. Um, and that this showed that, and here's the uh, CHADS-2 score, um, that you needed more than one, and, and, and this was the um, uh, distribution of the CHADS scores. Um, and now this was used a Bayesian uh, approach um, uh, for their endpoints, looking uh, for endpoints, and if you look at um, their initial publication, which was powered for non-inferiority, um, that what you saw, and my, should have brought my glasses, but here's the uh, primary um, uh, efficacy endpoint um, that what you, uh, and you see um, here, uh, red in control, that after um, about a year you get a crossover, but these numbers get pretty small out here. In terms of safety, what you see, and this is pretty um, consistent with a lot of um, device trials, you see a big safety spike right here initially. And that really reflects uh, periprocedural bleeding, which I'm going to talk about. 
uh, periprocedural bleeding really means uh, tamponade, um, and that this really reflects a, a learning curve uh, in terms of what uh, went on. Uh, so this was the primary publication with uh, uh, data out to about a year. But again, you know, these get the you know, studies don't get randomized uh, in one day. There's a long recruitment process, and that we had relatively few patients uh, out to four years. I want to spend a little bit of time on the primary endpoints, and there's been a lot of focus on bleeding. There was a, a 4.8% um, event of pericardial bleeding, much of which was uh, tamponade. Um, and that what I think this really reflects is a learning curve. This is when this um, was first being done. Uh, there was a lot of learning curve in terms of patient selection, in terms of device usage. There was um, uh, minimal changes uh, in the uh, technology to look at how to register it. Um, but if you look at some of the other uh, data, uh, you see um, that what you saw, now you got to remember there were twice as many Watchman patients, so when you look at events, you have to put that in, that there was a near elimination or, or market reduction uh, in hemorrhagic stroke, which is what you would hope, uh, and you saw um, a reduction uh, in uh, major uh, bleeding. Talking about the learning curve, and now the um, sponsor, this was initially at a company called Atriotech, which is a classic startup in Minneapolis, which acquired by Boston Scientific. They did subsequent studies, and when they went to FDA, they said, you know, we're very worried about this safety signal. You have to come back and really show us that you have learned uh, and that, um, that you can really deliver this without a 4% or 4.8% uh, pericardial effusion rate. And here are subsequent studies, and I'll talk about um, the U.S. cohort after commercialization showing that um, and how we got those data, but we have now very good data, and now currently nationally um, less than 1% uh, procedural or at 1% um, procedural uh, complications. Uh, and this really shows a, a learning curve both from the community um, and, um, and interestingly enough, they looked at new versus old operators uh, and the new operators are um, having similar uh, success. During that time, the four-year data came out, and now the trial was initially uh, powered for non-inferiority, but at four years, uh, what we're um, seeing, and we're seeing efficacy data here uh, and safety endpoint uh, here, and now as we go out to 48-month, four years, you can see these numbers. Um, you have a, the full cohort um, there, so there's power, and that there was superiority compared to warfarin. I think that the important thing here to remember that this is being compared to warfarin. Uh, not being compared to nothing, uh, and not being compared to uh, NOAC, or DOAC as I'm supposed to say. Um, and that these data also are older data and reflect on the safety, which meant um, non-inferiority endpoints uh, being similar, but you see this early um, raw, um, uh, signal uh, that was procedural, which I believe um, um, has been uh, mitigated. Um, and that the other thing that the uh, data show um, is that what's really happened is it really hasn't reduced stroke, it really has reduced hemorrhagic stroke. And that's what's shown here. They have similar rates, but if we look at the mortality, there's less with the device because uh, fewer of those uh, strokes are hemorrhagic. Um, and so that's uh, pretty impressive in terms of the technology. Um, people have looked at cost. Um, they didn't get the memo that you're supposed to call the STOAC, um, but this was uh, published um, last year. And uh, if you look at the cost of left atrial appendage occlusion, um, you see there's an upfront cost um, and that, um, that, that is flat, and there's a cumulative cost with both uh, warfarin uh, and uh, NOAC. 
I'm getting behind here. Um, these data allowed uh, for uh, FDA to approve the device with a pretty liberal uh, indication, not liberal, but um, a liberally written uh, indication. That is, it's for uh, patients uh, who are appropriate, who have a rationale, uh, um, appropriate for anticoagulation, but have a rationale for not using it. Pretty soft language uh, for the FDA. This was followed a year later by CMS uh, to uh, fund it uh, using something called a, um, a CED, Coverage with Evidence Development, uh, and done on a national level. This is a relatively new um, thing for FDA. FDA, I'm, I'm sorry, CMS. CMS is saying, we'll pay for this, but we're, we're going to do it for a limited time, and we're going to do it as you develop evidence, and we're going to tell you how to do that in this case. This was initially done with carotid stenting. It's been done with TAVR. It's done with mitral clip. Uh, and I think this is a, a good wave of the future, uh, though it requires a lot of infrastructure at FDA. The key components of this, um, they focus the indication. Um, and they require a national registry. We have our coordinator here, who I will not point out, who is responsible for it. Uh, and so we get a prospective data on every case that CMS pays for and allows it to have a very good database going forward. It also imposes a multidisciplinary heart team, including non-interventional cardiologists. And um, it also um, requires shared decision a model, which is very important for a number of reasons, particularly here at Dartmouth, where we lead the way through Megan's uh, leadership uh, in developing uh, shared decision models. Uh, and as I said before, um, as I've gone through this as a non-shared decisionologist, if that's a term, <laughs> of which I'm sure, I know it's a new term, but I know that Megan won't disagree with the use. Um, but as a non-shared decisionologist, um, what the real issue here is really figuring out a way to um, work with the patient, work with yourself to figure out the risks and um, benefit equation and to figure out how to do that. And what Megan uh, is doing, and I'll show you with her, um, um, she kind of let me um, share some of this, that she's working to um, not only develop the model but to integrate it uh, into EDH. Um, so when you see a patient, you can pull this up. A lot of the screens will be populated uh, and will and allow you to discuss with the patient in a really informed uh, manner as to what their risk of stroke is and what their risk of bleeding with is so you can do that. And, F and CMS understood this and is really mandating it, uh, which is new and I think a very good thing. So let's get back to the, our program here. It takes a village, it takes a team, it's multidisciplinary and um, consistent with my Stanford training. I like to take all the credit, but we know that most of the work gets done by people like Roseanne. I don't know if Roseanne is here. Roseanne, I'll embarrass you later. Uh, but, um, but really, um, to have a dedicated person to help coordinate this, to bring all these factions together. And outside of cardiology, I want to acknowledge uh, Athos, uh, Corey, and Tim Lukovitz from Neuro, because we need their input uh, as well. I spent a lot of time on conference calls, which allows me to make up very complex slides. Uh, but the most important thing here is to call Roseanne. But this is really to highlight that we've worked very hard to have uh, the looks complex here to be very easy for you to enter the system, which really ensures that we have a multidisciplinary approach. 
and I'll show you what our initial um, um, interactions have been. And, and really, the um, patients that we're looking for are patients, and there are a lot of them, as we've um, shown you, that are out there in whom we believe are at high risk for stroke, who should be on a stroke reduction strategy, and for whatever reason are having difficulty, of which left atrial appendage closure might be an alternative, uh, to be referred into this uh, system. So we've had 45 referrals so far, um, a bunch of which have been excluded by chart review and calling the patient. We've seen 36 patients in clinic, um, of which uh, seven have been uh, started on uh, DOAC, um, and um, nine have proceeded uh, to transesophageal echo. Three had inappropriate anatomy. I think this also may reflect that we're early on and we're less aggressive than perhaps uh, we should be. I had six cases all over when have gone very well. Uh, we're happy uh, to say, um, but this is what our um, flow is looking like. And it's interesting, of these cases, the majority have come from patients who've had GI bleeds, often from GI, so thank you, Rich, um, and from a neuro. And actually, um, now with talks like this and elsewhere, um, hoping to get referrals uh, from the um, general internal medicine community as well. Uh, so let's go back to our pleasant 85-year-old retired machinist. Um, we met with him uh, through uh, Megan's help, um, and here is a beta testing which I have access to, I've learned, um, but um, it's being worked out that the screen will be populated, um, can be um, used to help talk with the patients about various risks. Uh, and in talking with him, and here's a patient, and again, in terms of there's a discordance between guidelines, which said this patient should be restarted on um, uh, anticoagulation, and the patient, who was so frightened by his GI bleed that that really was a non-starter, was very clear to him that this bleeding outweighed um, stroke, uh, and that um, he was a great um, candidate uh, for this um, uh, procedure. Uh, he underwent TE echo. I want to give a shout out to Eric Williams from uh, Echo. Um, though again, consistent not only with my Stanford training, but being an interventional cardiologist in terms of taking credit for what other people do, a lot of this has really been enabled by TE, um, uh, not only technology, but um, the sophisticated usage of it. Our, our program in uh, Echo here is superb. And you can see the um, at various uh, projections here, the appendage. Uh, and a lot of the pre-screening and the anatomic appropriateness has to do with uh, is there enough depth in order to place uh, the device. Uh, here is a procedure. This procedure also, um, all of our procedures are being done. Uh, my, Megan, uh, myself, and Raj Shanga from EP just highlighting the multidisciplinary approach. Uh, and here we have a uh, pigtail catheter. Um, pig is not a name of an interventional cardiologist, but the shape of the catheter. Uh, in the appendage, uh, we're injecting uh, contrast. You can see the appendage. And Rich, can you turn on the lights? Or Harley, and you can see the device being deployed. Uh, it will loop if I don't touch anything. There you go. Um, no one fall asleep, please. This is the most exciting part. Uh, but here's a device coming out. You can see the end of it being desheathed, and at the end, it kind of pops out right there. 
Maybe it's not projecting as excitingly as I thought. Uh, but afterwards, you can see with an injection, it's in place. And you can see the, um, the device uh, there. You can also see the TE probe hanging around. And for the uh, budding cardiologist, you can see some calcium in the coronaries as well. But you can see the device in place. We give it a tug. And then the moment of truth um, happens when we release uh, the cable. Uh, as you see there, and it's in place. The patient was put on aspirin and um, Coumadin, and that took a little bit of talking with the patient for uh, 45 days. He, refer, he re returned, um, I, I got ahead of myself, again, to acknowledge this really takes a large uh, team, um, and uh, Raj, uh, Megan, Eric Williams, uh, representatives from the company who are there as well, anesthesia, um, and the cath lab uh, crew, uh, and Roseanne, of course, um, really important at bringing this uh, forward. The patient uh, was followed up. This actually is not uh, this patient's uh, TE. This is a slide I borrowed from someone else. Um, yeah, I'd say, you know, it's a representative slide, i.e. the best one we've ever seen. Uh, but here's a transesophageal echo showing the device uh, in place uh, and a 3D uh, image. And I apologize to Eric because he makes pictures just as pretty as this. Um, the patient was uh, maintained um, on aspirin and um, um, Coumadin for 45 days. After that TE, he was transitioned off to aspirin and Plavix, and at six months, will be uh, on aspirin alone. So in summary, with 10 minutes left, Rich told me to be on time, which um, I think reflects other things. Um, in summary, um, AFib is a common problem, um, and it's a growing problem. We're not doing as well as we think we are in terms of mitigating our patient's stroke risk. Anticoagulation is the proven and really should be seen as the first-line therapy for this. I really want to highlight that um, And as we transition uh, to DOACs. Though despite this, a large portion of our patients are not on anticoagulants, and that left atrial appendage closure may be an appropriate um, uh, solution uh, for them. Um, and that um, we're doing this, actually, um, CMS mandates this is done overnight. Uh, with uh, a same-day program with an overnight stay. Actually, in Europe, they do it the same day. Um, and that uh, we have a, a comprehensive program to help you uh, evaluate uh, and manage these uh, patients. I have a, a key uh, literature, if you email me or I'll send it um, to medicine, be able to provide you with the four papers. I think if you had time to spend in your spare time when you're not generating RVUs uh, to read, here are the papers I would uh, highlight. Um, starting with uh, guidelines. And with that, uh, with the 10 minutes remaining, thanks. And before I forget, uh, Roseanne, everyone knows Roseanne. Um, um, really, if you have questions, uh, you can email Roseanne uh, or uh, call her pager at five, uh, call her at 57921, and her pager is the same, so I can remember it at 7921. And with that, thank you very much. Thank you, and we'll open it up for some discussion. Great. Uh, that's a very nice talk. So I'm just curious, what happens to these all the time? Is the appendage filled with clot? And secondly, let's say, over the question, if someone develops bad congestive heart failure, and it's late, late, or enlargement, does anything happen to one of these, or they dislodge? 
Very good question. So what is the post-implant history of the device? Um, and we know this from uh, the animal studies, and we also know for some post-mortem examples that have been seen primarily from the European experience. The animal studies show that there's, you know, it's, there's a healing um, um, tendency for this, and when you come back about six weeks, um, they're uh, pretty much fibrosed in. Um, and that's why we feel comfortable taking patients off. And so that it's not, um, at that point, the, um, the appendage um, gets occluded, clot does form behind it, uh, and then natural um, healing mechanisms that the appendage really becomes a tretic. Uh, and uh, is a smooth uh, surface over it. So there shouldn't be concern. And your, your point alluded to the fact, actually, as we were sizing this, um, the, um, the atrium is very compliant and that the sizing actually is very dependent on, on loading conditions. Um, so, um, so the real, to your next question is, after six weeks, um, these are really healed in and it shouldn't be impacted by uh, heart failure uh, and stretching of the atria. Really enjoyed that book. Um, I had two questions as you were going through. Um, those, those initial problems that seemed to be getting less with the tamponade, yep. was that due to perforation from inserting the catheter too far? Because it looked like the rest was intracardiac, and I wouldn't have. Um, there, you know, as an engineer, you spend a lot of time on failure analysis. Um, and so there was um, a couple of cases where you know, people you know, poked through the appendage. I showed how uh, thin it uh, could be. Then um, there was, um, and sometimes it's very evident, but sometimes it wasn't. And so I think that most of it is, is felt uh, to be a procedural with a mechanical kind of perforation. There also was concern early on about sizing. Uh, that if you oversize them and overstretch, uh, recall these patients are anticoagulated afterwards, that would lead to it as well. A lot of it really has been uh, mitigated also procedurally. Um, I showed you that pigtail catheter in place uh, early on. Uh, they weren't using a pigtail catheter, and that wasn't you know, buffering the uh, tip of the um, a catheter. So there's a lot of learning. And also learning, I also show you the transesophageal echo about knowing what kind of anatomy you can get your device into. You need a certain amount of kind of runway, if you will. So I think it's a combination of what I call community learning curve in terms of selection and also um, a technique. Karen, that was such a great talk. Um, I just have a question about risk. It's very interesting. Uh, as you noted, that there's a high degree of variability. The anatomy of the appendage is not well um, conserved. Um, and, and there's a whole colorful literature calling these things cauliflower, broccoli, windsock in terms of how to characterize them. There's a very actually little agreement actually among operators and evaluators. Um, so A, you're right, there is a variability. Um, my sense is that there are appendages that are more, you know, um, um, are, are a more rich substrate for clot and are probably put people at higher risk. The problem is that we're just learning how to characterize them and to be able to follow those patients prospectively. So my, uh, I got a coffee uh, using a um, cocktail party um, level of evidence, which would be E or F. I think you're correct, but be able to uh, validate that concept, I think it's going to be many years out. Thank you.
Aaron, there are early adopters to technology, new technology. There are late adopters, and there are those who are sort of in the middle, watching the evidence accrue, yeah. and then deciding how, how well is this moving through commercialization? What's it taking to assess the real-time post-commercialization data? How is that moving, and how do, how besides education, as you are doing, how do we get the new technology out in front of patients for consideration? Um, there's many levels to that. And I think like most behaviors, there's a distribution, and that's true in terms of at the operator level and the institutional level. Um, this has been an interesting, and as an entrepreneur, I'm very interested in technology diffusion and, and adoption. Um, this is very different than TAVR, where patients come in, or uh, STEMIs, when patients are coming in highly symptomatic. And, you know, um, and you're fixing them. And I, I mean, actually, I, I really enjoy STEMI call, though. I saw Jeff Coven leave and let him know that I enjoy STEMI call. But you have a young inferior infarct who comes in. I don't want to tell the patients that the untreated history of an isolated inferior infarct of a patient actually is pretty benign unless we really screw it up. And there's other reasons to do it. But you go to those patients, there you've, you know, I, I get all sorts of things that I should maybe disclose more, you gifts from the family, you had a patient who's having an infarct, oh, Dr. Kaplan, you saved their life, and I'm going to say, oh, you know. Um, so a therapy which takes a symptomatic patient, especially symptoms which the patient's family and the patient probably associate with, you know, mortality, is an easier sell. And um, the AS patients, these patients are highly symptomatic. These patients are asymptomatic, and as a lot of people like to say, it's hard to make asymptomatic patients feel better. Uh, and as you saw, there's a, cur you know, there's a complication cost. And as good as I tell you as we're getting, there always will be that cost. Um, so the diffusion of this technology as opposed to TAVR has been a lot um, uh, slower and more um, deliberate and really has uh, taken um, up in communities where you have a broad-based um, solution um, and, uh, and like what we're seeing here. So that's the first question. So this, the fusion of this technology, but it's actually is done very well. There's many different ways of measuring. I don't know how many procedures were done last year, which was the first year, but in terms of dollars, um, Boston Scientific reported more than $125 million in sales, which uh, is, you know, saying that they're, you know, they're putting a lot of resources and they're getting returns for it. Uh, in terms of your other question was, how do we, you know, wh where do we fit on this? We're a rel relatively conservative institution. Um, this technology, actually, um, we, for a number of reasons, really, um, the institution wasn't comfortable with being really part of the um, studies. I think that's changing. Um, and I think it really has to do with the idea that when you're studying something early, that you really have to, A, build a broad um, um, not consensus, but support uh, for the people who are the first um, movers. And also, those people need to articulate really clearly what you're trying to do, what are the risks, um, and what are the benefits uh, for uh, the patients. And it, it's, it's a cultural thing. And I think that um, a certain amount of conservatism is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Aaron, can you say just a word? Uh, you referenced it briefly about. Uh, the role of uh, left atrial tendon ligature uh, in, in this problem. Yeah, well, actually, that's where I kind of started out. I, um, people know that I do device work, and I was working with a, actually, 
you'll find this interesting. Rich, with a company that had the idea of a uni handle for doing laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And I was helping them out, and I was like, we were in a pig one day and looking at the um, gallbladder, uh, and they snared it, and they put, they, they grasped it, they put a snare around it, and, you know, my dad's a psychoanalyst, what did that make me think of? The left atrial appendage, of course. Um, and I asked the, um, the surgeon, can he make a little window into the pericardium? And we slipped a uh, scope up there, and we saw the appendage. And we grabbed the appendage, and I ripped the appendage off and killed the animal. But, um, but the idea that you could take that technology um, and close the appendage was really very appealing. Um, and I worked with my um, mentors, Tom Fogarty, who funded some early animals for that. Um, and what we found is what Larry Dacey knows, is that the gallbladder's anatomy has a neck and the appendage has a very broad base. Uh, and that um, the snaring technology that I was using, now there's been new iterations of that that I think may be better, didn't give that same definitive closure. In fact, there's surgical literature, Larry, you may want to um, comment on for a while there, people were putting a purse string uh, into the appendage at the time of surgery and closing it. Uh, when, they, when they went back, they found out that, that they weren't all closed. Uh, and then you give that same definitive closure because the base is a broad base. They also, um, unlike cholecystectomy where you remove the gallbladder, which I'm told is a good thing. Um, here we left it and sometimes necrosed and um, followed by a, a pericarditis. Um, so um, there are both of those um, things. I do think that there is a group that's um, evaluating that and you know, we'll look at that uh, technology uh, as well. The really cool thought would be to go transoral, transesophageal, over to the appendage, through the peripheral window, do it all through the mouth. Yep. <laughs> um, hold on. We, 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 have had, we have had this conversation before, and, 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 and my response there is now he's chairman of medicine, is, Rich, I love that idea. I would save it, and I, in, fact, in fact, I would say I wouldn't tell anyone about it. Well, I'm on that note. Thanks.